Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. And today we're going to be speaking at the intersection of psychology slash psychoanalysis and democracy, and talking about the parallels and the conversations between free association in psychoanalysis and free speech as it operates in democracy. My guest, Jill Gentile, has explored these topics in her recent book, along with Michael McCrone, entitled Feminine Law, Freud, Free Speech, and the Voice of Desire, published in 2016 by Karnak. I'd like to tell you about my guest, Jill Gentile is faculty at NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and training and supervising analyst at the Institute for the Psychoanalytic Study of Subjectivity. Her essays, describing a semiotic and phenomenological trajectory of agency, desire, and symbolic life, have been published in many psychoanalytic journals. She's also founding member of the Dream Tank Collective, dedicated to the application of psychoanalysis to democracy, and to the public sphere. And she's also a practicing psychoanalyst in Manhattan, New York, as well as Highland Park, New Jersey. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. You hate me. Nice to have you. Um, so I was wondering what prompted your interest in this overlap between psychoanalytic free association and democratic free speech? Uh, that's a great question. I have often tried to trace the origins of that interest. I had been writing for years um, psychoanalytic essays about the emergence of a patient's sense of agency. And as I started to look at what I was really writing, I was writing about how patients claimed their um, ability to use signs and symbols and signify their desire and take ownership of their desire. And that led me into the field of semiotics. So for many years, I was beginning to write at the cusp of semiotics, the study of signs and symbols, and the study of personal agency as it evolved in the treatment room. So over time, as I worked with my patients, and as I worked, I should say, as a patient myself um, in analysis, I became really interested in how um, a patient claims what I came to understand is her free speech privilege, um, that the relationship between the analyst and the patient begins as a relationship of hierarchy, and that so much of the work of analysis is about dismantling that hierarchical relationship to, to produce conditions of equality and inclusiveness. And so that, that recognition led me onto the field of democracy, that 
this, even though we don't commonly think of psychoanalysis as a fundamentally democratic enterprise, it started to seem to me like, whoa, that's really what's at stake here. And it put a very different um, stamp on how I understood psychoanalysis from that point on. I started to read it as a theory of democracy, or at least a theory that can contribute powerfully to a theory of democracy. And when once I had that um, larger context that this analogy between psychoanalysis and democracy really was, I thought, well, where do I begin? Because that's a huge topic. And it led me to the core practices, the core assumptions, the core fund, the fundamental values of free association in psychoanalysis, if you will, the fundamental rule of psychoanalysis, as Freud called it, and the um, our First Amendment, um, our foundational constitutional right of free speech. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to start with that anal- analogy, thinking I would write two short essays. Um, the terrain became so complex and so interesting to me that it spawned this book. So are you... I mean, because you really go far with this book in not just speaking about how psychoanalysis shares certain values or aims with democracy, but but you know, keeping it a psychoanalytic book, it's it, you actually are speaking a lot to democracy. So, is is democracy something that you just happen to be really interested in? Absolutely. I mean, I'm. Um you know, in this day and age, a lot of people are extremely cynical about democracy. Um, and frankly, in the mental health world, a lot of people are pretty cynical about psychoanalysis. Um, I tend to be someone who's passionate about both and about their core values and in the possibility of that impossible, right? There, there's this tension between the impossible and, and the possible in both terrains. Um, I consider it a matter of faith to some degree. Um, that we practice psychoanalysis from a position of faith in in language and in a, a talking cure to produce um, curative effects. And I have over time, and really this is as a function of my practice as a psychoanalyst, became more impassioned about democracy and about what true democratic discourse can look like. And this idea that at the core of, um, a functional democracy, one yet to be realized and achieved. It's a fundamentally inclusive practice, an egalitarian practice, and one dedicated to the free speech effects of a discourse of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we create the conditions for a discourse of desire and its liberatory promise becomes really interesting to me. And, and so that kind of um, feeds both projects so democracy can really learn something from psychoanalysis in the way that psychoanalysis itself is is centered around a pursuit of the voice of desire. I really think so. And I think that um, by focusing so much on the First Amendment in this book and free speech, I am convinced that the court can learn a great deal from psychoanalysis, too, about what psychoanalysts have learned from the consulting room about what, how we create a space for speech and how then we might imagine importing or exporting some of our knowledge into the public sphere to um, 
to guide because, you know, when you look at the First Amendment jurisprudence and the practices of the court and government generally, there's a sort of, there's, um, okay, when I finish that sentence, there's a lack of, um, there's, it's almost as if there's no underlying theory of why free speech matters, what the value of free speech would be, why that would be our fundamental um, uh, constitutional right. Um, and if it is, then why wouldn't we dedicate more resources to championing every in every citizen's right and ability to claim free speech? And so... I think psychoanalytic wisdom has been so locked up in the consulting room and we're guilty, we're guilty for that because we have dedicated our journals to jargon and to mm-hmm. talking to each other. And, um, and of course it's not only the fault of psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis because of its location at the margins has always been excised from the Academy and from public life. And at this, in this day and age from insurance reimbursement by healthcare industry and, mm-hmm of all of these very short-term kinds of um, treatments that go by their acronyms that are uh-huh. because they can be coded in an acronym form that somehow they're more reimbursable or more uh-huh. effective. So, um, so I think we're responsible for our contribution to our own solipsism. Part of the reason I think um, this book, and not only this book, but if you look across everything that's happening in psychoanalysis nowadays, there's a huge commitment to public life, to moving outside of our consulting rooms into the public sphere. Um, you and I just came off attending to the local um, APA Psychoanalytic Division 39 meeting, um, where many, many panels were dedicated to diversity and inclusiveness and speaking across. So these ideas of free speech and the public realm and inclusivity are fundamental now to psychoanalytic practice and discussion. But, you know, you make the, you make a good point in the book that free speech requires a listener and, and requires knowing that one is being heard. So if psychoanalysis is going to speak to democracy, I mean, who should we be talking to? Who, you know, who are the people in power or, or the entities in power that, that need to hear what psychoanalysts have to say. Mm, well, boy, if we could all be consultants to the current president, I wouldn't be unhappy about that. Maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, it would be really, I, I think it's a great question. I think that um, this is some of the kind of think tanky work that we might need to do to consider how we can use our skills and, and help to translate our skills to the public realm. Obviously, the most natural ally of the psychoanalyst would be the press, because the press's function, and it's written into the First Amendment, is to serve a translational function. Um, that they, that if, that the, the press's special responsibility is to speak truth to power, to provide a checking function, so that the government just doesn't get to say what it will without some check on its um, truth, what you know, the truthfulness and the falsity of its communications, and and to provide a mediating function because without newspapers, without now the internet, 
the the country has grown well beyond this, the size it was at the turn of the uh, at the time of the revolution and the new republic. That there's no way that we can reach the individual citizen without the transmission of knowledge, and the press's function in serving as a liaison from the individual, especially the marginalized voice, to create a public mouthpiece so that there's a feedback mechanism to government officials. Mm-hmm. So that's natural correspondence. But I think in recent times, the press, well, since the election of Donald Trump, the press has um, kind of refound its footing, I would say, but or started to, but for many years, I think the press failed in its function to provide this function because they did um, begin to have a very cozy relationship with power and privilege. And so once we see that collapse of the dialectics of, um, of what we would say in the consulting room is a third space, a space that's accountable not only to the patient, but to a larger ethic, um, we begin to see the the ways in which tyranny reproduces itself, uh-huh. um, and we are left in this um, realm where we either um, are overly we're in the realm of fantasy because we have no mediating function, or we are or or dogma. Um, so the mediating role of the of the press of the analyst is huge for translating free association into free speech, for translating um, the relationship between private and public and and between the citizenry and and the government. The journalist community could could learn, I mean, I think many fantastic, we can learn from them, they can learn from us, something about how we listen and hear and how we translate. We have so much expertise in that area, but it does stay locked up in our practice. But then maybe one of the silver linings about our our current era and, and the current administration is that I don't I don't think the press and the current administration are cozy at all. And that might then create the conditions for the kind of space that that you're talking about as, as essential. Absolutely. This has been, you know, the irony of Donald Trump. This is he's been terrible for the media and for the First Amendment, and he's been profoundly helpful. It's a complete split um, because there has now been so much more activism and accountability amongst journalists to hold our president and Congress accountable for their communications, for, for Trump's executive orders, for Trump's very speech. Um, and his accountability to um, the platform he ran on, to the, his base, if not to the entire American base. So it's been um, a very vitalizing time. And when we look at all of the money that citizens have poured into the media to support journalism, to support truth in journalism and accountability in politics. It's in the ACLU, Planned Parenthood. It's really a time of resurrection as much as defeat for democracy. There's possibility of redemption. And looking at that decision, right, the fate of democracy lies in the balance, but it could go in either direction, which makes it a very, very exciting time. And one that I think is shared by most long-term psychoanalyses where there's a moment, there's a fate 
a, um, a progression where at some point the patient needs to choose between a faded kind of doomsday narrative of repetition and reproduction of um, trauma and symptom kind of trapped symptoms versus taking a leap of faith, not just based on nothing, based on incremental growth and a good enough uh, growing kind of commitment between listener and hearer um, in, in the relationship with the analyst, but ultimately needs to kind of take a leap of faith that the analyst needs to take as well on the patient to fundamentally trust each other to form a new kind of relationship that's not based on power, but based on genuine um, respect, mutual respect. I, I want to get into free speech um, because you talk a lot about it, obviously. And I, I want to first start with the question, which you ask a lot in the book, what is special about speech? And, and I'm wondering if you arrived at an answer to that question as, as you were you know, writing and writing the book, thinking about your writing? Well, yeah, what is special about speech? It's so interesting because, again, democracy do, demo, theories of democracy don't seem to have paid a lot of attention to this. Why is it our core um, amendment, our First Amendment? Um, and why do we name our practice the talking cure and how free association as our fundamental rule but talk so little about it and put speech for front and center. So I have thought a lot about it. I think Freud, despite himself, came to the talking cure, right? He initially founded his practice on the two polar, the, the polarities that actually space, is, is, that define the dichotomies where you won't find free speech. One was physical massage, physical, a, a practice of physical touch, which is Lou Aaron and Karen Starr, um, revealed recently in the literature actually included, it seems, a practice of genital massage. Um, at the same time, they, Freud was very committed to the practice of hypnosis, the idea that he could bypass the interpersonal relationship, right? The idea that we could bypass the um, the intermediary, intermediary and complicating role of the relationship. Mm -hmm. So we could almost, as if we could mind read, as if the path to cure, to direct path to unconscious life would come through um, hypnosis, suggestibility. He finally, because the dedicated scientist in him, the truth teller in Freud, despite his, you know, passions or biases, came to conclude that the, neither was providing him the actual truth of the unconscious. And he came, despite himself, to the idea that only through speech, this mm -hmm. mediated form, would we find truth. So I found I so I think there's something really paradoxical and beautiful in that, that the idea that this most hermeneutic realm, this mediated communicative realm, that really is the the um project of a symbolic species to claim mm -hmm. how to communicate through signs and symbols. That's what is defining about the human condition and the human species. Um, that 
that speech came to have this very privileged status, and it wasn't one that you know Freud initially set out to discover. So, so I kind of love that it marries his mythology, the mythological, the part of Freud that was purely about fantasy and and myth making, with the with the Freud that was about science and truth, and that we land on this realm of of, of speech as sacred. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of what you talk about later in the book as the tension between, you know, phallocentric, phallic ideals and principles of speech and more feminine vaginal ones. You know, the, the what you describe as Freud's initial approach seems so phallic in that he assumes that he can sort of reach in and access himself so omnipotently what the patient doesn't have access to and bring it out and what he learns is that that's not possible. He needs to back up and allow for there to be a space where between the two of them, uh, where speech can happen and, and it's in that space and it's in that speech that I suppose the patient's truth can come out. And there's something humbling about that for the analyst, I suppose. I think so. And I think it was humbling for Freud. You know, he, even when he gave up hypnosis and physical touch and is working on, Speech. He wants to keep inserting his speech and his interpretations on the patient. And finally, you know, Emmy, one of, one of his female patients, kind of protests and says, "I need to speak without your interruption, and I need to tell my story." And so it required a certain humility on his part to listen, to really then train his ear to listen, and also that his and for all of us who practice analysis, we don't just have the freedom to say whatever we want. Our associations are grounded in a commitment to harnessing and enfranchising our patients' communication, their free expression. So it guides, So we're grounded in an ethic that's not just about we, us saying whatever we want, which I would like to say by analogy would be true for a governmental official. Um, that it wouldn't be about the president saying whatever comes to mind. Um, it would be about an ethical commitment to channeling the speech of the other and helping to translate that and to tuning our ear to what what they are saying both directly and implicitly and um, often not consciously at all by, by, the, by the person who's speaking to us. And, you know, often... The patient has identified themselves as speaking to us, right? That's, like, that's such a fundamental part of the trajectory of treatment, of analysis, that at first it might be that the patient's speaking to the walls or speaking to themselves in a private soliloquy. But over time, we might recognize and interpret their address as one to us, to another, um, to harness that relationship into relationship, speech into relationship. Can we talk about what exactly free association is? Because I feel like this is really important to define, particularly since in the in the later part of the book you talk about how there is such a thing as, as speech or association that's that's deadening, that's um, that's saying nothing. And so, in in like in the consulting room, when you're instructing or trying to elicit someone's free speech, free association. What what exactly is free free association? 
And what and and how do you know when it when something is or is not free association? And how do you instruct your patients to even do that? <laughs> A lot of questions, I know. Well, they're such good questions, and they're so un they're un for, for, to my taste they're unsatisfactorily addressed in the literature. And the literature on free association is really haphazard, and it starts and it stops. And Freud himself said very little about it, which interestingly corresponds with our First Amendment. Very little was written about, you know, the First Amendment itself is only 45 words. Probably all that Freud had to say about free association is about 45 words. He um, says very little about it, but he nonetheless, throughout his writing, stays committed to it as his fundamental rule. Now, one of the interesting things is that, and that gets dropped in the literature on free association, but resurrected by Philip Reeve and later Michael Guy Thompson, is the idea that for Freud, free association had a moral injunction. It was not only free association, but the fundamental rule actually was that we speak freely, we say whatever comes to mind, that he invites an uncensored, unusually candid conversation. But it's not just candor, it's candor bounded by honesty, that there's a moral imperative that the patient needs to speak their truth, their truthful desire. Now, often we know in practice, people don't often have yet access to a truthful voice. They've taken in the voices of others. It's, um, there's like a lack of distinction between the signal and the noise. And so is the analyst listening for the noise or is he listening for the signal? Is it, um, Peter Christopher Bullis has some beautiful writing on free association about this. Um, and so I think that um, Freud himself was a bit unclear about the idea that we say whatever comes to mind and yet whatever comes to mind is bounded by this idea of truthfulness. But what is that? And how do we arrive at that? And how do we hear it? I think like when we see great art, we know, we know, like we know beauty and we know truth. But until you hear it, you don't, you don't know you've heard it. It's because uh -huh, uh -huh. when, when something is emotionally alive in it, that we know we've heard something real. Um, so, so part of the analytic odyssey is, right, there's all this noise and clutter in the patient's association. And increasingly, kind of, I think we raise the bar as we help our patients um, claim their voice and, and become more courageous and brave. Um, and that also requires the analyst sometimes setting you know, kind of paradoxically setting some limits on the patient's speech because free association is not really the same thing as free speech because free association we think is very close to uh, the unconscious. Um, but in my experience as a practitioner, we, we really first have to build a lot of... Um, uh, we, uh, we do a lot of work and this kind of comes from some of the way psychoanalysis has extended itself to build the franchise to patients who are normally too um, mute or incapable of communicating so um, or speaking truth to power. So gradually, it's a gradual process, but I guess what I'm saying is that through boundaries and a commitment to courage, and to um, signaling to the patient that we want to hear their truth, however uncomfortable it makes us, 
um, that we raise the bar in the patient's um, courage. And that in that act, they become more daring to reveal themselves and to release themselves from a hegemonic kind of discourse to one that's truly singular, um, that has a pulse of desire, something very animating and dislocating often for us to hear, but arousing because it's novel, it's not the usual, um, and the patient becomes alive in that process as the need. But I think speaking from personal experience, being in analysis, um, so I struggle with myself knowing when I am speaking my truth and when I'm speaking something that's meant to avoid speaking my truth. Like I, I as a subject really struggle with this. So I, it makes it inevitably harder for me to expect my patients to know because I, I assume if I can't know, then certainly they, they don't always know whether they're holding something back or holding um, or, or, or not speaking from a true part of themselves. So I don't know if you see free speech as something that, that gradually one approximates over in a sort of stepwise fashion over time. Pretty much. I mean, I think it's a really, I think, I think part of the struggle we have with this is, a lot of analyses, I think, end before the patient has actually claimed both, I would say, their free speech um, rights, their, their emancipatory potential, and before they've heard the music of their own unconscious lives, before they've surrendered to um, their unconscious, I would say, from a position of agency. So it's one thing to have all the noise and clutter and slips of the tongue and um, the stuff that we conventionally think of, right, the, the dream dream manifestations, this is what Freud wrote about and what we think of as our, as our access to the unconscious. But I think there's another, another level of the work where patients have already claimed a lot of semiotic agency and power, and now the work gets harder because there's a moment of Surrender and surrendering to a voice they don't even know is inside of themselves, but it's only going to come because they take there's an act of faith and trust and letting go. And recently, at least within the relational canon, there's been more emphasis on this project of surrender. Um, and I think we've yet to see the literature on the other side of surrender, or what that looks like, as much as I think we, we could benefit from seeing. So I share in your struggle. I think it's a very hard act. And, and sometimes I'll say things to patients where they'll say things like, that's not free association. You're always setting limits. And I'll say, you know, because we've covered this terrain many, many, many times, you have a choice to make. You can keep saying the same old thing. And not only that, interpreting what you say to me in the same old way, or it's time for a new interpretation and a new communication. Yeah. And that's might say to me, well, you need to do something different too, because you always say, now you're saying the same thing, like I'll make the same interpretations. And so the, I think the challenge is really for both of us to break out of our comfort zones. Yeah, to develop a, a new kind of curiosity. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, you know, you, you liken the psychic emancipation that psychoanalysis offers and the political freedom that free speech can further, but what does, what exactly does it mean to be politically free? Hmm. Hmm. What a great question. Well, I guess that 
is part of the project that interests me. What does it mean to be psychologically free? What does it mean to be politically free? What does it mean to be free? And so the more I tug on this question of freedom, the more I come over and over. I think every, there was a period of time where I had all these separate chapters in this book and I kept thinking, well, maybe I could rearrange them sort of randomly because in the end, every single chapter sort of hovers around this dialectic between freedom and constraint. And there's no such thing as freedom. That's the, that's our fantasy that there's such a thing as freedom to be politically free to be psychologically free. So emancipation is always linked to relationship. And you see this in Freud over and over, where he can't decide whether whether we can be free from repression or we need to return to repression for the sake of society. Um, whether we see it in the public realm, can we have hate speech or do we need to repress and, and domesticate hate? Um, so I would say um, that when we look, and as I did in this book, I looked at the etymology of freedom, and one of the fascinating revelations of that is that the etymology of freedom not only relates to this idea of frankness, of being you know, uninhibited and uncensored, um, but it relates to the origins of the word frank in franchise, meaning relation, related to each other in mm. franchise, in relationship. And that turns on the word for love, the original word for love. So free speech is linked etymologically with love, which means that political freedom and psychological freedom is linked with love and relationship. And finally, um, thanks to the semiotic and etymological detective work of our colleague in London, or in Britain, Patrick Mahoney, he discovers that the link in his own work on free association, that freedom is linked etymologically to an ancient scenario to the word for return to mother. Now, how bizarre is that? And yet it's not bizarre at all from a psychoanalytic point of view, because we understand freedom, free association. The ultimate irony and paradox is that it's faded. It's actually unconsciously faded, meaning that we don't get to choose our freedom. It's already that we surrender to our unconscious that we don't even actually fully get to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's um, determined, so this relationship between freedom and determinism, and that our agency lies in how we use language to communicate that. Um, but um, here we have this return to mother, so that allows us to see the way the origins of our democracy here in America, the, these founding fathers leaving the motherland, right, trying mm. to create democracy based on free speech. But it's all tethered. They're trying to leave the homeland, but it's related to the return to mother and how all of our patients, our work on separation and autonomy and freedom, um, leave mother, go to father, all of this um, literature hinges back and return to the mother and to the female body. So so then, as you know, I make a lot about the space of the female body and the female vaginal. Yeah, and I actually wanted to get to that because you talk about the vagina as a signifier of, quote, the mysteries of female power and of intuitive, untamed 
unconscious knowledge. Can you talk about the role of the vagina in this discourse about free speech? Yeah, absolutely. So, and that, I, that would surprise me. I set out to write this piece about free speech and the first amendment. And I led, it led me on this odyssey. And even though I'm a psychoanalyst and a female psychoanalyst, it hadn't occurred to me that of course all of this would, would orbit back, you know, all the signifiers would point back to the female body. So I look studying the foundings of democracy in ancient Greece and see how it's predicated on the exclusion of slaves and women, that the female body is locked up in the domestic, the, the, the domestic realm of the home. Um, and that she's not excluded. Her voice and her body are excluded from the polar. And then we look at um, the history of psychoanalysis where even though Female patients are, the, as we said before, the women, the patients who mostly, or his early patients were mostly women, and they taught free association, and they came to him because of their hysterical symptoms, right? Symptoms in their bodies um, that he needed to discover how to translate the meaning of those symptoms into speech and convert um, their symptoms into speech, um, and then he also. Um, theorized that the infant who's first mute doesn't have language becomes preoccupied right what inspires the infant's curiosity it's the discovery of anatomical difference the infant the growing toddler sees the boy has the penis and the girl has the absence of a penis well it's really that it's that discovery of what is she missing that births the whole project of psychoanalysis because there's a gap there's a missing appendage right there's a gap the girl doesn't have it it inspires mystery it inspires curiosity it inspires the, the gap that will become the gap that reverberates throughout association there's always a gap what doesn't the patient say so that goes back to your earlier question like what do we follow we follow what's missing what's what's still unnamed um so this question of can we name what's unnameable? Um, without naming, there's no knowledge. This mm -hmm. is the case of people who write about naming and semiotics and what we know from psychoanalysis as well. That's why naming becomes so important. So, okay, so there's this missing body part and then the quest to name it. What is missing? What inspires mystery? And this leads me on this quest in the literature to follow the trajectory of the analytic literature and free association. And I come across this series of papers where mostly male analysts are writing about the, how patients interrupt their free association at the moment when they can't speak. And what is it they can't speak? The female genital. So, how bizarre is that? Except if you're with it, if you're a psychoanalyst, you're, you're, we're accustomed to right to a very unconventional discourse and um, it, and profession for that matter. Um, and so, this idea that what is unnameable is the female genital, and then we see how Freud silenced and degraded the female genital as he trumped up, if you could bear with me, the phallus. Um, and the role of the phallus, as did 
almost every other male psychoanalyst theorist mm-hmm. to find. Um, even as female analysts, not only to point to the significance of the vagina, um, but Freud left it in a degraded, um, as an inferior genital, um, with the idea that it's really the repudiation of femininity that is the bedrock that all patients must come to um, recognize um, the psycho- psychological bedrock. Um, that men are lucky enough to then repudiate femininity and castration anxiety and, if you will, claim near free speech, whereas girls are left to, uh, women are left to kind of um, the sort of more woe is me state of um, analyzing your penis envy, but then accepting your fate. So the female genital, genital has this degraded status, but once we name it, we begin to see that it literally occupies a space between. It's grounded in the body, and it's also the entry to space, a space for inclusion, for insertion, for phallic penetration. And once we recognize that all symbols are grounded in, they're not just, we don't just create symbols out of thin air. They're grounded in, in matter, in, in something real. So now we have a symbolic space that's grounded in the body, that's physically grounded in the body, but also a gateway to open space. Um, it seems to me that we have primordial signifier of um, speech, of the very, the very primordial prior, that prior to the phallus, there's something primordial about symbolizing space, and. Um, just to say a little bit more about that, throughout psychoanalysis, there are many, many, many efforts to symbolize space. So we have the container containment, Eon's mm. efforts, we have Ogden's idea of an analytic third, we have Fonagy's idea of reflective space. Again, really recently, this has been, we've seen metaphors of space um, take up this effort to move beyond binaries, right? But we never name the space in terms of the body. Yeah. But we would, we would if we had phallic symbols. We would name them as such. So why are we not naming our counterpoint? And then how could we ever have an inclusive free speech regime if we don't have sort of the 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 the, the, the barrier, the you know, the kind of the uh, constraints that set that space up. Um, so, so anyway, there's a lot that was written about that I ended up writing about how feminine space births desire. Yeah, yeah. So then, how does feminine law enter this conversation, and what what is feminine law? Um, so once we can name the symbol, the vaginal symbol, we have a space between. Um, we have a space that's both bounded and open. And if you look at Freud's fundamental rule, when he says, say whatever comes to mind, and we recognize that he immediately came across all of the different constraints to free association. He came across the constraints of language that have to give up our unmediated fantasy realm, our maternal wordless order to enter the realm often signified by the rule of the father or Lacan's paternal law. Um, 
And so we have various constraints. We already talked about the constraint of honesty. We talk about the constraint of relationship. So the space between openness, say whatever, and the boundaries to that freedom create the special dialectical space of free speech, mm-hmm. of symbolic life. Um, and then the same, I would say that with the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. It's, it's this brilliant First Amendment. The reason, why has it been so resilient? These 45 words, really? So much, so they've said so little else about the First Amendment, but it's robust partly because they enshrined an ambiguity. And I think it's that tension of how to enshrine something without um, recreating a dramatic, dogmatic, um, totemic law, you know, you, a, a more an injunction as opposed to, or a prohibitive law, as opposed to a law that opens space, mm-hmm. that opens mm-hmm. the space desire. It's not a coercive law. That's not free speech. So when we hear coercive, you know, again, back to your political discourse, when we hear brute force language and coercive speech, that fails as a speech of freedom, as a free speech discourse, from my point of view. Yeah, it's actually um, brilliant because it places the constraint not on the citizenry, but on the people empowered to constrain the citizenry. They're the ones bearing the constraint. Congress shall make no law. Yes, Congress shall make no law. Well, Congress was to make no law, because, right, exactly, because... We, and the and the analyst is to make no law. It's their it's their speech that's constrained yeah. for the sake of creating the space. Um, and I I don't get the brilliance for that. That's really in Freud, and that's in in um, and that's in the Constitution. Yeah. But this is the brilliance, and I believe without knowing it, these men, these founding fathers of democracy and psychoanalysis, landed upon a feminine law, a law that goes beyond the laws of the fathers. You know, Freud names Teutonic laws, he names laws of the father. Lacan, I think, feminized the phallus. I think he did something very interesting in pointing to the importance of the gap and free association and the void, the lack that reveals desire. But Lacan, again, names his law as a no, an, an injunction, a law that stops, that sets a boundary instead of opening the space. But I think through that no we get to the open space of desire, and that's where we want to go. And all of public life needs to be dedicated to preserving this very special special dialectic between constraint and freedom for the sake of harnessing the unconscious, the liberatory pulse of desire, and, you know, the reverberant energy of the body, that we kind of lose that if we don't have this, because... Otherwise, we don't we don't have a space for the energy of psychical bodily life, and that's that's huge. And I think we we're more apt to think of um, of the um, symbolic as we claim symbolic life that that's where we add our kind of um, creative energy through our use of symbols and signs and meaning, and it is. But partly we forget that the body itself has juices and a raw kind of pulse of uh-huh. energy. And so that's, um, there's a lot of knowledge in the body and yeah. power. So it's exciting to begin to harness. 
Well, speaking of constraints, we are almost out of time. This has been a really illuminating, illuminating conversation, as and, and the book itself is quite quite a ride. Before we go, though, what are you working on next? Yeah, lately I've been really um, preoccupied with finding a way to translate some of the insights from this book um, into. Uh, public essays for the public because I'm really um, very interested in figuring out how to translate how psychoanalysis can contribute to public life and I think we're at a moment in our democracy where things are so so challenged Um, and the free speech discourse in this country um, and in the world the issues of equality and growing inequality really threaten the well-being of our world and our planet. I think that, um, so I'm really dedicated to core questions of equality and why is it that equality is such an elusive project? Why do, why is, why as human beings are we so much more at home in conditions of hierarchy than conditions of equality? Um, so I want to keep tugging away in my psychoanalytic writing and study at that, but I, I very much want to bring our discourse to the streets in some way. And um, I think so, so, so far I'm very focused on trying to communicate outside of our, our field as well as within it. Um, and thank you so much for being someone t- who does that, who's, who's courageous enough to venture out of the consulting room and out of our institutes and our conferences into the real world to spread the good word of psychoanalysis and how, how it might help um, with other social problems. I think, I think that's something that we're so grateful for. And of course, thank you for being on our show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the conversation and for such great questions and for being interested in, you know, and I just want to say it's the power of psychoanalysis that inspired this very project. And I was a formerly very shy, quiet person. So it's the power of psychoanalysis to say this is transformative and should be available really for everyone to claim their ability to speak and be heard. So, so thank you to you and thank you to psychoanalysis. Thank you. Take care. Take care. That was my interview with Jill Gentile, author, along with Michael McCrone, of the book Feminine Law, Freud, Free Speech, and the Voice of Desire, published in 2016 by Karnak. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology. I love your comments and suggestions, so please keep them coming. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. There, you can also find links to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.